Dear Heavenly Father, I lift up to you the men and women in this room who have given of their time, Father, and of their, of their effort to be here tonight. For I know, Father, that it pleases you whenever your children, uh, united in the Holy Spirit, have come together in your name. And Father, we know you are here amongst us, not only, Father, by your presence in us, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but as well in your word itself laid before us. And we, uh, we've come for that reason, Father. I pray, Father, that we've not come to hear a man, we've not come to hear one another, though we may benefit from hearing from those sources. We pray, Father, that in all that we do, we've come tonight to hear from you through your word, through the teaching that's done, through the uh, work of the Holy Spirit speaking to each of us in our hearts. I pray we just have an open heart for what you'll bring to us today. I pray that we've not come just to fill our heads with knowledge so that we may be puffed up. Uh, if that may be somewhere in the back of our minds, Father, just uh, push it aside for us right now and, and get our hearts in the right place to, uh, to hear what you have to speak to us. Because we know, Father, that what you'll speak to us will not just be facts and figures and history and events, but it'll be personal, Father. You'll talk to us about things we have in our own lives that you want to see done differently or changed or amplified. And that, Father, is truly the reason why we study your word, so that we may be more like you. So we look for that change tonight as well. For any who may still be on their way here, Father, we pray that you would just complete that trip safely and bring them here. And Father, we pray for good fellowship and for the needs and intentions that may be unspoken in the hearts of those here. For those who would be here but could not, we pray for them, for their well-being and, and whatever may be keeping them away. And uh, for the provision of this room and for our church, Father, for those things that were done to make this night even possible, we give thanks. And we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to dive, as I said, back into the end of chapter 13. And in this, we're going to conclude tonight, chapter 13, which means we're going to conclude what I would call a three-act drama. I've used that term before. And I mean that to represent chapters 11, 12, and 13 out of Luke's Gospel. So far in chapter 13, which is the one we've picked up with, as you know, in this study, so far in chapter 13, let me just remind you of what we've done. So far in chapter 13, Luke has moved the reader along a line of thought. Now, I want to go with, that, with you real briefly through that line of thought so we can reintroduce where we're headed. First, at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus called the, to the nation of Israel to wake up. He called them to wake up and he called them specifically to recognize that they are going to face judgment for rejecting him. So if you remember with me at the very beginning of the chapter, he said, if they do fail to bear fruit, he used the parable of the tree, if a tree fails to produce fruit, we see that tree is worthless. Since it's worthless, after all, it's a fruit tree. If it doesn't produce fruit, what good is it? We cut it down. That was Jesus' way of speaking to the nation, represented in the form of that tree, that either they were to bear fruit in the form of faith in their Messiah or see judgment. Secondly, Jesus moved into the relating of a story of how, or Luke rather, moved into this relating of a story of how Jesus heals a woman in a synagogue. That was the next transition we went into last week. And we said that that was a very simple but effective way to illustrate from Luke's standpoint that Jesus was, one of, was the only one sent to free them from their bondage, their spiritual bondage. He alone, Jesus alone, is the one who has the power to free the nation of Israel from the grip of the enemy, from sin generally in the form of a hardened heart, sinful heart. And ultimately it would be the way they'd be enabled to bear fruit. So you remember all this, right? So Luke is painting a picture for us. We said when we taught on those verses that this is not a sequential scene. This is not all one scene. Luke has picked things that he pulls in to create a story here because it's important for him to illustrate something to the reader. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Finally, we're going to notice that as Luke revealed in those preceding chapters, Jesus is demonstrating his, de his deity time and time again to the nation of Israel. And time and time again, what are the leaders of the nation of Israel doing? They're rejecting it. They're recognizing it, but then they're rejecting it. And they're rejecting him as their Messiah. And now the stage has been set. As we get to the end of chapter 13, Luke basically takes a turn for the home stretch. He's demonstrated to the reader, look, Jesus came and did everything necessary to prove to the people in his day that he met the prophetic requirements as the Messiah. And time and time again, he's illustrated to them the need to make a decision, to make a choice about who he is. He's illustrated the importance of it and the consequences of it. 
And he's done it through miracles and through teaching and through healing. He's got their attention. And yet every time he's done that, the leaders have rejected him. And now the crowds as well have wavered. There has not been a wholesale acceptance of him by the crowds. If you've had that impression as you study scripture, I want you to reorient your thinking just a minute here. The crowds loved him, to be sure. But what did they love about him? They loved the fact that he healed them. He loved the fact that he could bring embarrassment to the leaders of the nation of Israel, whom they didn't like either. They loved him for political reasons in some cases. But a minority, to be sure, a minority loved him as the Messiah. So as time goes along and Jesus gets more adamant with them about the fact that they have to make a decision, they can't assume that they're just going to automatically be saved because they're Jew, that pressure, that building pressure, adds to the discontent of the crowd so that even they begin to flee him, particularly after persecution breaks out as he reaches uh, the city of Jerusalem. So now... As Luke ends chapter 13, he brings us to the conclusion of this repeated rejection cycle. He brings us to the ultimate conclusion. Remember, as I've said before, the whole point of chapters 11 through 13 in Luke's gospel are designed to illustrate in detail why the nation of Israel came to the point of killing their own Messiah. Because you have to remember the audience for Luke. Luke is talking to a Greek audience, an audience that out of their own history is very comfortable with the notion of God coming down and walking around on the earth with men. They had a pantheon of gods. They had gods that came down and married women and had children. I mean, in the Greek pantheon of gods, there's nothing new about saying God came down and was man on earth. What's new about that? Why do I take your God to be any more God than the ones we have back in Athens? To that audience, Luke talks to them and says, this God that you need to worship as the one true God, he came down to earth. Oh, but yeah, he was killed. Now, that doesn't make for a very convincing argument if you're a Greek, now does it? How do I accept your God, the one you say is the Lord of the universe, if you also tell me he was killed by his own people? What kind of God is killed by his own people? Not very powerful God. That's the dilemma that Luke has to address as he addresses this audience with his gospel. So he's been working patiently from 11, 12, and now 13, particularly, to explain why the death happened, to illustrate the motivations of the people who put him to death, and why Jesus allowed it. Now, that doesn't end in chapter 13, as you would imagine. We have many more chapters to go in building that. But in these chapters where the confirmation of the rejection occurs, where Jesus confirms the rejection and withdraws his offer of the kingdom, we understand better why that moment happens. And that's what, that's what he's building on here. This apparent contradiction of a God put to death by his own creation had to be explained. And as Luke now concludes in chapter 13, what he introduces tonight is the, the latest piece, the last piece of the puzzle. And that is this description of the kingdom. An extended description of the kingdom of God. Because after all, that's what Jesus came to introduce or to offer specifically to the nation of Israel. The kingdom of the Messiah. That's what the offer was. I come, the kingdom is here. The kingdom has arrived. And I am prepared to offer it to you, the nation of Israel. So as we enter into that discussion, as we read the verses for tonight and begin to study them, I need you to understand how Jesus presents his discussion of the kingdom to the crowd. Because he knows, Jesus knows, that one of the reasons why the crowd's been unwilling to accept him up to this point is that they share in the Pharisees' mistaken view of the kingdom and of who will enter into it. We're going to examine the issue tonight in some detail. But as we begin, I want you to note that Whenever you see in Scripture a description of the kingdom of God, that phrase, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom, I want you to know that that the kingdom of God is a term that can vary in its specific meaning depending on the context. You could talk about the kingdom of God in terms of a certain phase or period of time in God's eternal plan. You can use it more generally to just talk about God's sovereignty over his creation for all time. You can use it more specifically to talk about those who are in the kingdom as a title for the citizens of the kingdom of God. There's ways to use that term that can vary, and we know what it means by its context. So we're going to look at the context tonight to see how he means the term when he starts to describe the kingdom of God. Second thing you need to notice if you're a good student, uh, if you're careful, if you're looking at the the scripture carefully, I want you to notice the counterintuitive descriptions he gives of the kingdom. How each and every time he's going to describe the kingdom tonight, in the verses that we're going to study in Luke, the way the kingdom is depicted in these verses will look very counterintuitive, very different than you might have expected if you're a Jew, a Jew in his day. These are all counterintuitive in their description. So 
As this offer now comes to a close, as Jesus begins to wrap this up in terms of, of withdrawing the offer, he's going, to begin, he's going to end this with this commentary on the nature of the thing he's offering on the kingdom himself. And we're going to start in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21 and look at this first segment of his description of the kingdom. This is where we left off last week. Luke 13, verse 18. So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the, net, of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now we're going to stop there because this thought is segmented nicely from what follows. He begins this segment with a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is, right? It's a question that the, is not intended to elicit a response. It's merely the, the way to introduce a discussion. So he begins with a rhetorical question. He asks, what is the kingdom like? To what should I compare God's kingdom? Before I look at the comparison, let's make sure we understand what he means when he says kingdom of God. What aspect of his kingdom is he referring to? And there is a wealth of scripture available in the Bible. We could go from front to back especially in the Old Testament, to give us an understand, understanding of what God means by the kingdom of God, what we mean when we say the kingdom of God, what Jesus would have meant here when he said, what should I compare the kingdom of God to? Let's begin with some basic background, and then we'll, we'll open up quite a few scriptures tonight to kind of build this. The Old Testament throughout promises to the nation of Israel a Messiah. And in that promise, the description of what the Messiah will do for the nation includes... He will rule over them, and he will do it during a time of peace, and he will usher in a kingdom of righteousness over which he will rule. And in fact, virtually all that we know about the nature of this kingdom, to include those facts and many others, all of that comes out of the Old Testament. I would tell you that the only notable fact about the kingdom itself that's added in the New Testament is a duration of one stage of the kingdom. We know that one stage of the kingdom of God is, lasts for a thousand years here on earth. That fact, and that fact really alone, is new to us out of the New Testament. Anything else the New Testament has to say about the kingdom of God can be found earlier in the Old Testament. So if you were a Jew and you knew your Old Testament, what you knew about the kingdom of God was fairly complete. You had a fairly good understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. Let me give you out of Revelation 20, verse 4, where we get that one additional new piece. I'll read you that one verse. Speaking about, this is John and his testimony of what he saw in his vision from Christ. He says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and, uh, and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then in verses 5 and onward, it repeats the thousand year length of that reign. So there is some point of time in the future where Christ himself is physically present on earth. Those who are the saints, those who are described in that verse, are with him, reigning with him for a thousand years on earth. So a portion of what we would call the kingdom of God includes a thousand year period of time on earth when Christ is here physically reigning. So we know that has to be in the future. It hasn't happened yet. And we know that's considered part of the kingdom of God. But we also know that can't be all that is meant by the kingdom of God. How do we know that? Well, for example... Luke chapter 1, verse 31, says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. This is the angel speaking to Mary, as you know. And it goes on. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That kingdom has no end. That can't be the same exact thing as the thousand-year reign on earth, because obviously a thousand years has a beginning and an end. All we can understand then is that this thousand years fits within this greater period that's being referred to here by the angel. So the kingdom of God does not end at the end of the thousand year reign. More appropriately, we say that the thousand year reign is one stage or one facet of the kingdom generally, of how God has planned for his kingdom to exist and manifest itself to, to the creation. Similarly, we can say right now, God sits on his throne. Scripture tells us that. He sits there now on his throne. His kingdom exists in that form every day. There's also verses that would equate the kingdom to the church itself, which we'll look at some of that tonight. 
So there's another form of kingdom in the sense of the church in, and its existence in the world. So the word, the word kingdom or the thought kingdom of God is a complex thought that is not just one of those things. It is all of those things. So that begs the question, which of those things is in view in the verses in Luke tonight? All of them? Some of them? One of them? You need to know that, don't we, before we can really understand what he's trying to teach about the kingdom of God. And as I said, it's going to be by reference, by context, to know what he's speaking about. I want to go to Matthew 13 first with you right now, because Matthew 13 is the comparable set of verses to some of what we're studying tonight in Luke. It's not a perfect comparison. Luke has, there's some differences, as you probably would imagine. But there are some important things out of Matthew that will help us better understand what we're seeing in the parables in Luke tonight. So in Matthew 13, beginning in about verse 24, we're going to look at the parallel verses, ones that are parallel to what Luke teaches. So that means I'm going to skip a little as we go through this chapter of Matthew. I only want to hit the verses that have something to say about what we're studying in Luke. And I want you to see how the term kingdom of God here is used in a variety of ways to illustrate Different meanings. Beginning in verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat uh, sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, after Jesus gives this description of the kingdom in Matthew, then he interprets this parable for the disciples later, beginning in verse 37. So I don't even have to work to give you this one. Let's go look at verse 37. Here's what he says beginning in verse 37. He says to them, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who committed lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now if you're paying attention there, you notice the word kingdom came up a couple different times and yet it's clear from the context that it was talking about different things. He tells us in this parable that the kingdom of God is comparable to the way Jesus plants seeds in the world. In other words, the way he brings men and women to the faith. The way he brings up believers in the church. In the body of Christ. And even as Christ is busy affecting that change in the world day by day, one believer at a time, and you know, so on and so forth. Even as he's doing that, what's the enemy doing around him? The enemy is cultivating the unbeliever. Now that doesn't mean the enemy plants an unbeliever. We're all born unbelievers. But it means that those unbelievers are being cultivated and nurtured and directed and used by the enemy, even among those who are being made believers by the power of the Holy Spirit and brought into the family of God and made the sons of righteousness. So is this kingdom, this is a comparison now to the kingdom of God. So what do we draw from that comparison? What do we learn about the kingdom of God in in, in this description? And before we go to that conclusion, note one more important detail. In the last days, when Christ returns, we're told, the wicked are gathered from the four corners of the earth and removed from the earth as Jesus ushers in his thousand-year reign on earth. So now we have another important detail about that thousand-year reign, about that time when Christ rules on earth. As he begins to set up that kingdom, that thousand years begins immediately before that moment or in connection with that moment there'll be a world with believers and unbelievers on it. And in that moment, it's not the believers who leave, it's the unbelievers. Because you want to stay behind when Christ is coming to the earth. You don't want to leave if he's coming back. What we're talking about here is not the rapture. The rapture has already taken place at an earlier date. That preceded a time we call tribulation, which then ensued 
And during that time, new believers are being made. Revelation teaches us that. And at the very end of the age, you have a world with believers, again, new ones, new ones who have come to believe since the rapture, and you have the unbelievers who have been there all along. And when Christ returns, we know he destroys those that are arrayed against the nation of Israel. He comes, he sets up his kingdom, but oh, by the way, he cleanses the world of all unbelievers in that moment. You know, out of Matthew chapter 24, when we hear about two will be in the field, one will be left, two will be working at the mill, one will be left, that's not a picture of the rapture, though it's often taught that way. That's a picture of this moment. And the ones who leave are the ones who are bad. And you'll know that if you go back and read Matthew 24 and look at those specific verses and look at what's being taught right around them, before and after. It's the second coming of Christ, not the rapture. This is a further affirmation of that fact. This is where the unbelievers are removed so that the kingdom may, be, may begin with only believers on the earth. The meaning of kingdom of God here is not God's throne room. The meaning of the kingdom of God here in this parable out of Matthew is not the thousand-year reign. That's the thing he ends with. What is it talking about? What is the kingdom of God in this parable? The world today. The process that began with his first coming and continues even today of new believers being brought up in the world, in this field, even among the tares, even among the unbelieving world around us. So here we know that the word kingdom of God here is referring to the church, if you will, or the period of time on earth, as he puts it here, until the end of the age in verse 40. This church age we now experience, until this church age is complete, we have this field, if you will, full of wheat and tares mixed together, waiting for the appointed day when he will sort them out at the end of tribulation. That's a lot of eschatology. It's without as much scripture support as I'd love to provide. I'll, I'll put a plug in for the Revelation study that I have available if you're interested online. It's a long course, and it goes through all of this in painstaking detail and builds so that you can see how the Scripture supports it. Um, and that, that's not, obviously, what we have time to do tonight beyond what I've already done. Now, in, this, in the next series of verses out of Matthew, what you're going to look at is the same parable we read in Luke. I want you to look at verses 31 and 32, which I skipped over, in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, you see the same comparable verses to the ones we read in Luke. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and so on, right? Look at where that is sandwiched. It's sandwiched immediately between the telling of the parable regarding the field and the explaining of the parable regarding the field. If you look a little further... In verse 33, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. This is the comparable one to what we've read in Luke as well. In that series of verses, therefore, the word kingdom of God is being used in a consistent pattern from front to back. So if you were at all confused, if, if it were possible for us to be confused about what he meant by kingdom of God when he talked about the leaven or when he talked about the mustard seed in Luke... All we have to do is come to Matthew here in, verses, in these verses in chapter 13 and look at the broader context and we get our answer as to what he means by the kingdom of God. It's the same as he, what he meant earlier when he talked about the wheat and the tares. It is the earth and the church while it's on the earth. So when he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, he's talking about the same kingdom that he just talked about in the field. So how is the kingdom we experience here on earth like a mustard seed? What is the point then of that specific telling, one characteristic is that the kingdom is going to start very small. Well, that makes perfect sense. How did the kingdom on earth start? With Christ himself, in a very humble role, rejected by his own people, put to death like a common criminal on the cross. You can't get much smaller than that if your point is to begin a uh, worldwide movement. I'd say in the record books that goes down as the most miserable start for a worldwide movement ever envisioned, right? Except that it had the power of God behind it, so it had all the power it needed. It starts small, inconspicuous. And more than just the fact that it's small, its growth defies all expectation. If, you're, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, if you've ever seen one up close, they're tiny little round pellets, very small. I mean, that's the point of the parable. They're not the smallest seed in the world. That was not the point. The point is they're just very small. And if you've ever seen what can grow of them, in our culture, mustard is a weed, basically. It doesn't grow very big. But in, there is a variety, a black mustard seed variety, that's common to the Palestinian lands. It can grow up to 12 feet tall. That's not a huge tree. But we're not talking here about the biggest tree or the smallest seed. We're talking about a relative comparison. What started very small ended in something quite impressive. 
That's the comparison he's making for the church. What started as one guy who to the world looked like a nobody who was put to death miserably at an early age really was the beginning for something very great that eventually, as the parable goes on, has the strength to allow birds to nest in its branches, which some have interpreted to mean that the enemy, because birds are sometimes a picture of the enemy or of the devil, the enemy has some infiltration into the church. But in fact, that's not the meaning of this parable or of, those, of that reference. It's rather a reference to the fact that strangers will find a home in this entity. And of course, to a Jew, who's the stranger? The Gentile world. These birds are a picture of the Gentile nations finding a home in something that to the Jew was really supposed to be all about the Jews to begin with. A Jewish Messiah coming to his Jewish nation. A church that began in Jerusalem with Jewish followers. But one day grows big enough that the world itself will nest in it. If you want further confirmation of that interpretation of the birds, you only have to look as far as Daniel chapter 4. If you were to glance over, and I'm not going to read out of Daniel, I'm going to summarize what's there, but if you were to glance over in Daniel chapter 4, here's what you would find. You'd find the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 4, he experiences a dream. And in that dream, you hear of a tree that grows big enough to fill the whole earth, ultimately with birds nesting in it. And in fact, you see beasts living under its shade and resting in its shade. Daniel interprets the dream for the king. And Daniel turns to the king and he says, this tree represents Babylon in its entirety. It represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which we're told by God is a kingdom that encompasses the whole earth. That though Nebuchadnezzar himself didn't travel around the whole world, nevertheless, God had put into his control the entire world. He had made that sovereign decision. And that the animals that inhabited that tree represented essentially the various nations of the world that had come under Babylon's control. So that parallel, that a tree filling the earth is a kingdom, and that the animals that nest or rest on that tree represent the nations having you know, been encompassed by that tree, gives us a nice parallel to understand what's going on in this, in this parable that Jesus teaches. The point of the mustard seed parable, therefore, is to illustrate that it would be a remarkable, unexpected sight to watch the kingdom of God grow from a meager, humble beginning to a dramatic final state. So what's he teaching to the nation of Israel? I mean, think about the, the parable of the leaven, which just illustrates the same concept, right? Small amount of yeast in a bread changes the nature of the whole bread, makes it balloon and grow. It's the same basic concept being illustrated a different way. But think of it now if you're a Jew. What have you been taught out of the Old Testament about what you should expect for your coming kingdom? Were you taught it would start small and eventually grow and encompass the whole world? Not at all. You were taught it was going to come in a moment, destroy and vanquish all of Israel's enemies, set up God's kingdom in a moment, God ruling on his throne over the nations of the world. Israel is the chief of the nations in a moment. Now, we know that's still yet to be fulfilled because that's actually a depiction of Christ's second coming. What they didn't understand was the rejection of the Messiah would lead to this interim period where a kingdom in a different form, an unexpected form, would take hold slowly bit by bit, individual by individual, because it is, after all, a kingdom made up of individuals. And then as that indivi those individuals spread and grow, its influence in the world would grow as well. Not to the point, as some might teach, where every single living human being on earth suddenly becomes a Christian, and on that day Christ returns. There is a form of teaching that echoes that. They take this parable too far. They think it means that essentially Christ's return depends on the last unbeliever becoming a believer, and on that day he comes back. It's with a good heart. It, it intends to encourage evangelism, which you could never argue with, but it's a misinterpretation of the Scripture. The fact is, as he pointed out in Matthew, when he returns, there's tares left to be dealt with. That's the teaching of Scripture. So, now you see the counterintuitive nature of this first part of Christ's teaching on the kingdom. It reversed or tried to reverse the Jewish expectation of the kingdom. What he's doing, of course, is he's pointing out why they're unwilling to receive him. They wanted to see might. They wanted to see a, a Messiah show up and vanquish the Romans. They wanted to see a Messiah show up and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And until he did that, they weren't willing to accept him. In other words, they didn't have faith. They wanted to judge on the basis of sight. Prove to me who you are, then I'm willing to follow you. Christ said it didn't work that way. Listen to what the Jews have been taught in Jeremiah 23. It'll give you a richer appreciation for why they struggled with the notion of what Jesus presented. Jeremiah 23, 2. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. 
I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. And I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a branch, a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's a quick summary of many. You can find many other passages in the Old Testament that echo that same thought. Psalms 2, for example, and others. What you're seeing, though, in a nutshell, is the way the Jews expected to see their Messiah show up. The way Jesus is bringing it is not what they were looking for. And so they're struggling to accept it on that basis. One of the reasons why. Moving on, I want to move a little further into the teaching in Luke, and I want to show you how the, the, the counterintuitive nature here continues to build. Look in chapter 13, verse 22 of Luke. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and preceding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Okay, but before we dive into these, look how they begin. Luke says Jesus is walking and teaching as he heads toward Jerusalem. We're still talking here about Jesus heading ever steadily toward the city of his death. He, he's going to remain steadfast in this mission of getting to Jerusalem. And, he, and he's going to teach, of course, along the way as he's been prone to do. But his travel is purposeful. He's headed to Jerusalem. We're told at the beginning of chapter 9 of Luke that he set his sights on Jerusalem and on his ascension. So from chapter 9, actually, we've been looking at how Jesus had a single goal to move steadily toward Jerusalem. This is his final visit. He visits, it, visits Jerusalem three times in his life, as far as we know from Scripture. This is the third and final time. So we're, from here on in Luke, we're watching a one-way trip to Jerusalem. Do you know what a haunting feeling that must have been, by the way, as you think about being in his shoes for just a moment? To, to, to know what lay ahead of you in Jerusalem in all its gory detail, and yet to keep walking... Without hesitation, without any, you know, without any doubt about your purpose or whether you should go. I mean, it's one thing to have somebody bring calamity upon you in a moment. It's another thing to know it's coming for weeks ahead of time and to actually walk your way toward it. I think we, as we know the suffering he, he experienced in his crucifixion, I think we have to remember that it started a long time earlier in the sense of him knowing what was coming and moving steadily toward it. It didn't just arrive upon him in a day or in a weekend. Looking at the teaching itself, as we look back at those verses, uh, we're starting to see a pattern, I think, emerge a little more clearly, I hope. He's asked, for example, are just a few being saved? Are just a few being saved? And I want to be clear about what this is meaning. For a Jew, being saved meant entering the kingdom. Luke has positioned this here, and you know how it, ended, how it began, right? It started when he said he was passing from city to city. Clearly, this is a different scene. This is a different moment. This is different than the moment we just addressed him earlier. Luke has stitched these two together to make a point. Why did he choose to stitch these two things together? Well, they're on the same point. They're on the same theme. They build on the same point, and that is the nature of the kingdom. So when the Jew is asking Jesus, are many being saved or are just a few being saved, he's basically saying, who gets to get into the kingdom? Who's going to make it into the kingdom? It's even remarkable someone would think to ask this question. In other words, it's a sign that there's some doubt creeping into their minds, that this backward counterintuitive teaching is starting to take hold because uh, it's typical for Jewish teaching and thinking to say all Jews were going into the kingdom, or at least all good Jews, and by good we simply mean someone who kept to the law and practiced it, as opposed to like the tax collectors who apparently had dismissed it altogether and were off living a sinful life. But if you stay within the law, try to be a good Jew, you're going to heaven because you're a Jew, because you're a child of Abraham, as they saw it. So when you say, are only a few being saved, you've almost presumed an answer to that question, haven't you? You've almost suggested by the question itself that you're not sure all Jews are making it. That's a radical thought if you're a Jew. In fact, it explains why he asked it the way he did. 
Why did he say? Why didn't he just come out and say, "Are there going to be some Jews who don't make it, or are all Jews going to get into heaven or into the kingdom?" He says it in a more subtle way. He says, "Are only a few being saved?" So when Jesus is asked if just a few are being saved, I want you to realize this questioner is proposing that maybe only a few Jews are. Maybe that is true. And I want you to think of another thing as well. No one, and I don't even think this particular questioner, would have assumed that a Gentile was eligible to be saved. So when he says or she says to Jesus, are only a few being saved, what's implied there is, are only a few Jews being saved? Because there was no point in asking if Gentiles were being saved. That was a pointless question. The answer to that is obvious. No, God is, they're dogs. They're not going to be saved. There's not a Gentile in the world that God would ever look down on with favor. So the question is implied to mean, are all Jews being saved or not? That's going to have to be a part of the question by implication. So what does Jesus say? He answers in a surprising way. He confirms, frankly, that only a few are being saved. But then he goes even further, and here's where it gets even more counterintuitive. He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. That phrase, enter through the narrow gate, that's a euphemistic way of saying there is a narrow path into the kingdom, and by virtue of it being narrow, it only grants entrance for a few. All right, that's implied. That's how he's answering the question. He's saying, you strive to enter through a narrow gate, which means not everyone's getting in. Now, we've heard that before, right? The narrow path, the narrow gate. But you need to think a little bit more like a Jew living in a walled city to really appreciate what he just said. Think about major cities for a moment in that day. In Jesus' day, a major city had high walls to protect it. Many of you probably already knew that. Jerusalem certainly is a good example of that. And cities like Jerusalem with high walls had to have gates so you couldn't get in. You all knew that, I'm sure. But they had a variety of gates. If you've ever visited the Holy Lands, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, even modern-day Jerusalem, the gates themselves are a feature of the city. Gates have a personality, a history behind them, a certain look, and they come in different sizes. They come in different sizes. Some were large and elaborate. They were meant to be the, the, the show place, the way you walk in. You know, if you have a house with an entrance through the front door and maybe another one through the garage, well, when you bring visitors to your house for the first time, the last thing you want them to do is walk in the garage entrance, right? That's, that's your little entrance. That's not the fancy one. You want to make sure they come through the front door. In our house, we rarely walk in and out of the front door because we come through the garage with the car and all of that. So, you know, really the only time you use the front door is for a guest. And that's sort of the way a lot of these elaborate gates were thought of. They were the, the ceremonial way or the, the, the more fancy way into a city. They were very inviting. And they had a wide street so that they could accommodate a large party or a lot of crowds or a lot of movement, a lot of commerce maybe. Not all of them were obviously ceremonial, but the point is they were wide and inviting and easy because their point was to let a lot of people get through in a very efficient way. Most cities, though, would also have, especially if they were a larger city, they'd also have a smaller, uh, cramped, difficult entry point somewhere, or more than one, but they'd have it somewhere. It was sort of a utility entrance. It would be an easy way for a solitary traveler to get in through the city from another junction point without having to make the long trip around a city to find the main entrance. It was just, you know, you don't want to have to walk around three quarters or more of a mile to get into a city to get to the main entrance. It's just you. A small gate could be easily defended, easily guarded, and individual travelers could come in that way. But narrow gates were often not on the beaten path. They were not the main path into the city. They were for a, a shepherd coming in or somebody who would come from a, a, from a different direction. They were not going to be popular, and they're not going to be used as commonly as the main gates, if for no other reason, but they weren't big. They didn't accommodate a lot of people. And more importantly, even still, they didn't allow you to bring a lot of stuff with you. I mean, you couldn't bring a huge party of camels and goods and, and, and services and, I mean, of uh, servants. You didn't have the ability to bring a large entourage to a small gate. You, you would, by necessity, have to go to the larger gate if that was your situation. It was really an individual kind of entrance. Jesus says, strive to enter by that gate. What he's implying is, you're on the main road, the big gate's right in front of you, you've got 20 steps and you're in, get off the road take the three-quarter mile walk around and walk in the small door in the back of the city. That's what he's telling them to do. Strive, in other words, to do that. Make that your goal. That makes no sense. That makes no sense to anyone who understands what it meant to walk in and out of a city in that day. That was a very puzzling kind of suggestion to make. But it has implications, right? For us as well as for them in that day. It implies, among other things, ignore the attractive, easy option that everyone else is prone to follow. More importantly, he says, look at what happens to the people who follow that easy option. One day in the future, he says, when that 
moment of judgment arrives. And in this parable, he actually describes the moment where that confrontation occurs. In that moment, when that judgment day occurs, one day in the future, they're going to come before Christ because we're all promised that day of judgment, standing before the judge, Christ. And they're going to be surprised to learn that the path they chose into the kingdom is the wrong path. They're going to go into that moment expecting the reward of the kingdom that they've been told as a Jew, for example, or they would be told they're, they're going to get. And in verse 25, we see Jesus saying, I don't know where you're from, which is a way of saying I don't know who you are. Remember, in that day, to know somebody was to know of their heritage, of their family, of their tribe. I don't know where you're from. You're a stranger to me. I don't know who you are. Depart from me. And these people, look what they do. These people appeal to him on the basis of some loose association. He said, they're going to say, we know you. Come on. We know you. We're buds. Hey, we ate. We drank with you. Which is a reference to who? The Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees that bring him in and invite him to dinner? We've seen that twice now in the Gospel of Luke already. And then it says, hey, we listen to you teach in our streets. Who's that a reference to? The crowds. The leaders and the crowds being epitomized in this picture as people who think they've got the solution into the kingdom. They're walking the wide, easy path. What was the wide, easy path for the Jew in that day? It was being a Jew and keeping the law to some degree, having a sense that they're doing the right thing in some regard, but more, most importantly, being a, a son or daughter of, of Abraham by birth, not by faith. And in that association, they're saying, hey, wait a minute, what are you telling me I'm not getting in? We ate with you, we drank with you, you know, hey, it's, it's like old times here. And he says, I do not know you. And he re refers to them specifically as evildoers. In other words, they could enjoy, and I want you to listen to this because this is really his point. These people, represented here by Pharisees and crowds, but of course it can be applied more generally to all unbelievers. These people could enjoy Jesus' company all day long and they could even remember his teaching and the words he used. But go back to something Jesus taught earlier. He said earlier, we studied, I think it was back in chapter 12, he said, those who are not for him are what? Against him. You can't be a friend and not receive him for who he said he was. No matter how cordial you think that relationship may be while he was on earth or while you sit in a pew somewhere in a church, when it comes time for judgment, you're either in or out. There's no in-between. And we know there are going to be many people who choose the wide gate, not just in Jesus' day, but in every day since, and in our day today. And what does that wide gate look like? In a moment of preaching here, I'll tell you, we are surrounded by people, even today, in the church, and I would argue perhaps, and for almost certainly in our own church, who are looking for the easy, popular way to secure their future with God, whatever they view easy and popular to be. And many of those wide paths have nothing to do with Jesus and the gospel. Of course, we're talking about beliefs like Islam or you know, New Age mysticism or, or Buddhism or Taoism or Wicca or you name it. Something that's easy in the sense that it appeals to the flesh. It lets them do what they have a proclivity or an interest in doing. seems to be what's popular and hip and new and, and making inroads in their world. And it's the big wide open door that everyone around them seems to be following, so let's go that way. That path or paths that are out there offer a variety of ways or seem to offer a variety of ways to earn God's praise and therefore to earn entry into a kingdom, even if those people wouldn't express it as kingdom or trying to enter heaven, even if they have some other vision of what they're achieving. It's really along the same line spiritually. And I'm not saying these paths are easy because they don't have sacrifice. A lot of these faiths or, or, or uh, false religions impart tremendous sacrifice on the part of the people who would follow it, demand tremendous kinds of self-sacrifice to be a part of that, that particular religion. It's not because they don't involve effort, right? In fact, many of them involve a lot of effort because usually they're works-based. So we're not saying they're not easy. We're not saying they're not work or effort in a human sense. No, we're saying they are, this is the point of the scripture, we're saying they are wide and easy because they do not involve a work of God. They are easy because they don't involve a changed heart. They are easy because they don't depend or relate to the suffering of God's Son. That's cheap. That's easy. They're easy in the sense that they are cheap and meaningless ways of trying to approach God. What's hard, of course, was God's work on the cross. They are not true in their direction or in their intent or in their focus and most of all in their faith. What they are 
is human-derived ways to enter on an easy basis. They're not striving for the narrow gate. I said earlier, I think there's people in every church, including our own, who represent the people in Jesus' parable, who in their own walk are epitomized by this parable. They are, for example, eating and drinking regularly with the Savior. We just call it communion. And they are certainly sitting under his teaching to the extent they're hearing it from somebody in that church. And when it comes to their ticket into the kingdom, nevertheless, they've chosen a wide and popular door in some way. Perhaps uh, they come to Christianity through a false gospel like the prosperity gospel. Or perhaps they have been pulled into one of the many false churches like the Mormon church where you hear a distorted and false view of Jesus preached. Or perhaps they just never believed anything. They just sit in the pew and they, they have some earthly physical value they receive, the, com- the common fellowship with people they like, the fact that they feel like they're doing the right thing on a Sunday morning instead of sitting at home. Who knows what's in their heart? But the fact remains that when they face Jesus on Judgment Day, he says, I didn't know them because you came through a painless, popular way. You didn't come the, way and o- the one and only way. And in another way, they epitomize another important parable, the, the sower and the seed. These are the people for whom the seed fell on hard soil or fell in soil that was so shallow that at the first testing it died, where there was no real root, there was no real faith in their life. It was merely the appearance of faith, something outward and overt on their own effort, not a true change of heart. They know of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. It's not what you do, it's who you know. That's true in faith as much as it is anywhere else. You know, in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says this, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. It's not a casual reference. That's intended to tie into the teaching we've covered tonight. To be saved is to turn your back on the wide gates promised in the world for entry into the kingdom and place your trust in what is in reality a very small, insignificant gate. A man who died 2,000 years ago on a cross as a common criminal. A very unlikely place and person to place your trust in comparison to what the world would tell you you should do. Uh, in the teaching, let's return to the moment when Jesus speaks these words. He says, not all Jews are being saved. And look at the punctuation point he adds at the end. In verses 28 through 30, he says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. The counterintuitive reverse nature just continues to move through his teaching. Look what he just did to the Jew. This is, this is hard to appreciate if you're not thinking like a Jew, but he just, he just hit them between the eyes. He drops a bomb, I guess is the way I would put it. He says, all the prophets who you assume will be there will be there. But you won't. You can't hit a Jew harder than that. You've confirmed that the ones in whom they place their trust as their patriarchs, yes, they're receiving their reward, by faith, of course. But look, you won't. How do I reconcile that if I'm a Jew? Because to a Jew, why was Jacob there? Because he was a son of Isaac. Why was Isaac there? Because he was a son of Abraham. So why am I not there? Because I'm one of their sons too, if you trace it far enough. Because it had nothing to do with who your daddy is. It had everything to do with where your heart is, and that's not what the Jews expecting when it comes to define who will be in the kingdom. And then to add insult to the injury, Jesus says that the table set in the kingdom will include people from east, west, north, and south. This is a clear reference to other nations in the world, and the Jews would have caught that, at least the ones who were paying attention. The Gentiles, in other words. This table that ushers in the beginning of the kingdom, this, this meal that begins the kingdom, which we hear described elsewhere in Scripture as well, that table will have unbelievers sitting around it. I said that wrong. You'll have Gentiles sitting around it. To a Jew, that would mean an unbeliever, right? Uh, A dog, someone who didn't deserve salvation. But we know who that refers to, of course, is to the church. And virtually any Jew you would speak to in that day and and probably any Orthodox Jew you'd talk to today, that's heresy. That's heresy. To suggest a Gentile is part of God's plan for salvation is tantamount to heresy under their law and under their interpretation of Scripture. And as Jesus reverses this thinking that all Jews are first in God's eyes and all Gentiles are last, as he begins to reverse that, saying some who are last in the Jews' eyes will be first in God's plan, he's beginning to make a point yet again that 
you don't have your picture of the, of the kingdom of God correct in your mind, which is why you're not seeing me as your appointed Messiah. Many are going to assume that they are first because of their Jewish birthright, and they're going to be doomed to be last in God's eyes. And many who the Jews think are last, the Gentiles, are going to be the first in the form of those at that table. He's illustrating here why he's been rejected by the leaders and ultimately by the crowds. He's not who they expected to be. He's not like what they expected, and he's not bringing what they expected. He's a completely counterintuitive leader or Messiah. So then Luke records something different. We're going to finish here quickly through the end of these verses, and then the last two verses tonight are the most important, which is why it's really hard for me to break any time short of that moment. Uh, I appreciate your patience. Look at Luke as he records what the Pharisees tell Jesus next in Luke verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away and leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. The Pharisees here, as we look at these verses, they're they're obviously using a scare tactic here. They're they're trying to get Jesus to retreat from Jerusalem. And they use this ploy that Herod is after you. Now we know from Luke 9 that Herod expresses a, a tremendous interest in wanting to meet Jesus. And When he finally does meet Jesus in chapter 23 of Luke, he asks Jesus to perform miracles in his presence as if he sees Jesus as a little more than a performing magician. And of course, he's mocking Jesus in that. So so Jesus refuses to do anything for Herod. And in the end, Herod simply mocks him and sends him away. So it seems unlikely, based on what we do see happening in the gospel, it seems unlikely that truly Herod had any desire to kill Jesus. He, He didn't see Jesus as an enemy or as anybody to worry about. He was just a trifle. He was just a passing interest. To Herod, anyway. Jesus didn't present any kind of serious threat. So it's more likely the case that the Pharisees are simply lying in an attempt to get Jesus to turn around. But even if, even if Herod had desired to kill Jesus, it didn't matter. Jesus wasn't going to be swayed by that commentary. He wasn't going to be deterred by going forward. And I love his response because what he says to the men in response to that comment, built into his response is a significant jab at the Pharisees in the moment. Look what he says. He says, go tell that fox what I think. And he goes on. In other words, he treats the Pharisees as if they're Herod's messengers. But think about that for a minute. They had taken upon themselves this role of delivering a message. You know, they're they're putting this face on it like we're here to help you. But we all know it was exactly the opposite. And they take upon themselves this role of being a messenger, of bringing a message from Herod, of telling Jesus what Herod thinks. Obviously, Jesus didn't expect them to take his message back to Herod. So what he's really doing is he's insulting them here because he's treating them as if they were Herod's employees. They're treating them as if they're under Herod's control and working for Herod. That's like a tax collector, right? That's like anyone in the Jewish culture who would turn their back on the nation of Israel and begin aligning themselves with Rome and working for the Roman authorities. In a moment, he's cast them down in the eyes of the people as if they were tax collectors. He's compared to them, in a sense, to the employees of Herod. And then he goes on to say, Tell Herod, I cast out demons, I perform cures, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. Who's he talking to? We already said he's not going to expect this message to ever get back to Herod. That's not his point then, is it? His point in saying what he said to the Pharisees is not to communicate something to Herod. So who's he communicating to? To the Pharisees, isn't he? And to the crowd more generally? What's he just reminded them of? Hey, remember? I'm the guy casting out demons. I'm the guy performing cures. Where have we just seen all that? Chapters 11, 12, and 13 specifically. And regardless of who's going to oppose him, whether it be the crowd or whether it be the Pharisees or Herod himself for that matter, he's not going to be denied his goal, his goal of reaching Jerusalem where he was appointed to die. They in that crowd know Jesus. They know that he has met any test they could conceive of to prove that he was the appointed one sent to them by God and they have refused to accept him and he's not going to be stopped of his goal reaching Jerusalem. Do you understand what that means? You have a king who's arrived ready to usher in the kingdom and nothing stops him from getting to Jerusalem. And yet if he arrives 
without having been accepted by his people, what does he do? What does a king do when he arrives to take hold of a land and the people in that land reject him? He rides into town and does what? He destroys them. You either accept the king when he arrives or you accept his wrath for not having accepted him. He's saying, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, the seat of the king. And I've proven myself to be the king. And nothing is going to deny me that goal. Figure it out for yourself. You're on the brink of losing the kingdom I'm offering you. That's how close they are. Now, his reference here to today, tomorrow, and the third day, I don't want you to see that as a literal length of time. We're not suggesting he's three days away from reaching Jerusalem at this point. We can know just by looking at all that remains in the Gospel of Luke that there's a considerable amount of time still to take place before he eventually reaches there. So it's meant more euphemistically. It's symbolic. It's, it's referencing the point that there is time yet to take place, but on the appointed day, he's going to get there. Nothing's going to stop him from reaching that goal. And then he comments that a, par- a, a prophet cannot perish outside of Jerusalem. And this is not to say par- uh, prophets, by the way, have not been killed outside of Jerusalem. They have been. What he's likely referring to here is the inevitable destiny of all true prophets sent to a disbelieving and rebellious Israel. They're going to be rejected and they're going to be killed because they spoke a convicting truth, which means that Jerusalem here is emblematic of the nation. A prophet cannot die. A prophet has no hope to do anything but die at the hands of his own people, at the hands of the nation of Israel. Emblematic, embodied by, represented by their capital city, by Jerusalem. And they're going to reject him and kill him just like they did the prior prophets because he spoke a convicting truth. That's the truth of the moment. Finally, in Luke 13, look what he finishes with. These are the climactic verses of these three chapters of 11, 12, and 13. And that's why I'm asking so much of you tonight to sit through this because to stop anywhere short of these is to miss the point of what we've been building to. Jesus ends his commentary on Jerusalem by lamenting her history as well as her future. He says that this is the city that kills its prophets. He, it stones those sent to her to God, by God to bring her to an awareness of how distant they are from God, the God they profess to follow. And he says that how often he wanted to gather the children of that city, which I believe means representatively the children of Israel, the Jews in general. I wanted to gather them up like a mother would gather up her chicks. Why? Why does a mother gather up her chicks? To protect them. To, to guide them, to help them grow, to nurture them. And as often as he wanted to do that, they would have nothing of it. What's interesting about that verse is it speaks in language that talks about a longer period of time than his present moment on earth. He didn't say how much I'd like to do it now. He says how often I've wanted to do that. It speaks about a longer period of time. It refers to the fact that Jesus is the one who was, is, and will be. And in all the times past in the nation of Israel when a prophet was sent, what did the prophet do? The prophet spoke the word of God. And who is the word? Christ himself. Christ came in that form as opposed to his incarnate form now. And they refused him then just as they refuse him now. And just as they stoned the prophets then, they'll stone the prophet incarnate now. And as much as he wanted to gather them up through those prophets and through the effect of his word, he wants to gather them up now. And they would not have it. You notice that's past tense? In that line, he is now turning the corner. It would not happen. And look where he goes next. The moment in which he declares his rejection of this generation of Israel because of their rejection. This is the verse in Scripture where all eschatology rests. I'll show you a little of that why why in just a moment. Luke 13.35 Behold, he says, Your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus declares in that verse, in that moment, that that Israel's house is being left to her desolate. And we know this is a reference, first and foremost, to the physical destruction of the temple and of the city, which occurs under the Roman army when it breaches the city walls in about A.D. 70 and puts down a Jewish rebellion. This is a prophetic reference to that coming destruction of the city and of the temple, of their house. The house of Israel, the seat of power, the seat of their temple, the seat of their pride. In that assault, the temple is destroyed, the city is burned, and we know from history that literally millions of Jews are murdered in that moment, in that, in that week-long, camp, several weeks campaign. 
This is the harsh reality of the judgment that comes upon the city because of their rejection of the Messiah. This is the ugly truth. When you reject God, when you face judgment, it's not going to be pretty. How could it be? And this is what it looked like in their day. Not spiritual judgment. That followed. But even in the earthly sense, even in the temporal sense, there was a judgment. There was a calamity brought upon them for the rejection of their Messiah. Daniel, the prophet, prophesied this very event when he wrote in Daniel 9.26, Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. It's a prophetic look at how the nation of Israel will be treated by God for having cut off the Messiah. And then Jesus adds that last comment, which he directs to the nation as a whole, and this is very important. He says, they will not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a very important phrase. In fact, as I said earlier, all our understanding of eschatology, which is a fancy word for uh, the doctrine of end times events, all our understanding of eschatology rests on this phrase. It's not embodied in it. There's certainly a lot more teaching in the Scripture about it, but it all rests on this phrase. Jesus has just declared in that verse that the nation of Israel, the nation that God promised the Messiah, they will not set eyes on the Messiah again until a day arrives when that entire nation simultaneously and in union has an immediate and complete change of heart concerning who he is. And as a result, on that distant future day, they will entirely reverse their decision about this moment, and as a nation, they will declare that he is their Messiah. They will say, blessed is he, meaning Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. Since they rejected him while he walked on the earth, offering the kingdom... He is never going to return to them to establish that promised kingdom until the day arrives when they reverse the decision that resulted in him being cut off. So corporately, what we're saying here is corporately the nation of Israel must admit their sins and, rec- and sin specifically here, their sin of having put their Messiah to death and then recognize that Jesus was that Messiah and call out for him. And when they do that, he will return this my friends, is the basis of Christ's second coming. Our Lord will return to the earth, and I'm not speaking about the rapture. That's not His second coming, as you hopefully may know. That's His moment of returning for His church, only to return with Him to the clouds and into heaven. But the moment He comes back to reign on earth and establish His thousand-year kingdom is initiated by the nation of Israel corporately calling out for Him in the words that He uses here at the end of chapter 13 of Luke. But the question that must be in some of your minds, I hope, is what could possibly propel the entire nation of Israel to come to that conclusion and act in that way? Scripture tells us how and when in a general way. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, we hear this. And in that day, and this is referring to the day when the age will end, and to know that you'd have to go back and read more of Zechariah, but I'm hoping you'll trust me in that. In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Then he goes on in chapter 14 of Zechariah to say this in 14 verse 5. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him, referring to us, the church. And that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. Now, from chapter 12 through chapter 14 of Zechariah, we get an extended discussion of these events. I highlighted the key ones that deal with our teaching tonight. But what I want you to see in that teaching is that it is the spirit of supplication, we're told, the Holy Spirit poured out by God on the nation of Israel in that day of their distress at the end of tribulation as their nation is being attacked by the Antichrist and his forces, 
Jesus will appear to defend them and save them from that moment and usher in his kingdom, but he does it because the nation, under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, comes to a sudden corporate realization that the one whom they pierced, they now look upon him as their Messiah and mourn him like one who mourns their firstborn. And in that they call out and cry out for him. And he returns as he promised he will do, but only in the day they do that. Now, we can't say on a calendar when that's going to happen because, as the Lord himself has said, that day is not known to us. But we know the events that precipitate it. We understand what it is he's waiting for because he has a covenant to keep with his nation of Israel and he will do it under those terms, having properly judged them in the meantime for their earlier rejection of his son. And that, my friends, is the point of chapter 13. As Luke builds to that point, he has shown us definitively how Jesus did all he needed to do to prove his deity, how he was rejected by men with evil and hard hearts who had selfish purposes in their rejection. And in the end, he promised them what it will take to bring him back. And now, through the rest of Luke, his focus has changed. And as we'll see in the future chapters, he now looks solidly to his disciples and his disciples alone as his audience, for he's preparing them to pick up where he leaves off after he leaves this earth. And, of course, he continues in his steady march toward the cross. The offer of the, rejection, the, offer of the kingdom now having been forever withdrawn from that generation, never to be made an offer again. Father, I thank you again for your word, but mostly, Father, I thank you for having shown us the narrow path. For, Father, without that path, without having had the Holy Spirit come to us and teach us of the truth and call us into faith and even now teach us out of your word, we would be as hopeless as so many others walking that wide path to destruction. We pray, Father, that from what we've learned tonight, you might prepare us and give us opportunity to be the instrument through whom someone else might learn the truth and leave the wide path and enter in the door, the door of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you tonight for the teaching and for the opportunity, and we pray it be your will we might return soon, Father, to continue. In Jesus' name, amen.